Um, okay, uh, we'll go ahead and get started today. Uh, first thing to note is that Sergio and Rhoda, who have done the video work for the past uh, year at Church on the Beach, moved there in Atlanta, and uh, they left yesterday. They arrived safely, so they're going to be missed immensely. And uh, I, I, it, what their work has just been, it's meant a great deal to me. Um, in addition to that, I would like to, because this week is the 4th of July, it's the uh, birth of our nation, I'd like to go ahead and read just the uh, uh, first two amendments to the Constitution. Uh, kind of everything else hinges on these two. So if we get these first two wrong, everything else goes wrong. So here we go. Amendments to the, U the Constitution of the United States of America. Amendment number one, Congress shall make no law re respecting an establishment of religion. That's the first thing they mention in here is religion, because when our religious freedoms are gone, everything else follows. They shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. And then Amendment 2, which is almost as important a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of the state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And we want to remember that. Uh, if you don't own a gun, it may be a good time if you believe in uh, defending the Constitution of the United States to go out and get your license and uh, just have it for your own security because things are changing quickly in our nation. Um, a uh, couple of announcements I'd like to make in addition to uh, Sergio is... Um, uh, this week, on the 28th of June, this past week, I went over my 28th anniversary with this beautiful lady here. She's put up with me for all those years. So uh, I want to thank Hitako for being so patient there. And as I said, this coming week is the 4th of July. And so I'd like to do something I've never done at Church on the Beach. And we don't have a, a, a flag here to do it to, so we can, in our minds, make a... Uh, uh, a mental picture of the uh, flag of the United States. I'd like everybody to rise and just, if you are willing to make a pledge to the flag of the United States of America. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. All right. I, normally I read a New Testament passage and this week I'm not going to do that because we are going to go through three entire chapters of the book of Hebrews and uh, normally I read a couple of Psalms. Uh, I'm only going to read one Psalm today and then we're going to go ahead and get into the sermon because I don't know how long I'm going to be speaking on Hebrews but it's necessary to understand what we're going through in the book of Genesis. So uh, let me go ahead and read the 110th Psalm first. And then after that, we will skip an Old and New Testament reading and uh, get into uh, the main, main course of our uh, sermon diet here. Okay, Psalm 110, a Psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. In the beauty of holiness, from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute, ex, he shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. 
All right, before we get into the sermon today, I have uh, This Day in History, which I like to do every week. I've got a couple of interesting things that have happened. The first is in 1862, the U.S. Congress established the Bureau of Internal Revenue. And in 2012, the United States of America is bankrupt. They've overtaxed their citizens, and they have uh, not been prudent with the money that they have collected from us. And we are heading into financial disaster. So uh, there you go. In uh, about 150 years, we've gone from uh, a very great nation without any internal revenue service to a nation which is faltering with an internal revenue service. I don't know which uh, you prefer, but I'd rather have no taxes at all and let the government earn its own way. In 1863, during the U.S. Civil War, the first day's fighting at Gettysburg began. And if you've ever been to Gettysburg, I've been there. I went through there as I drove around America a year ago. And uh, it is, I was reduced to tears driving around. It is, it is so special to drive into there and to see rows and rows and rows of uh, artillery and battle formation and then to read of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people from each division which died. Sometimes an entire division would be gone. Two people left out of 500 or something. And uh, uh, how many thousands and thousands of people died in the heat of that field, which is there to this day. So that's the uh, first day of fighting at Gettysburg. And then in 1905, the U.S. Department of Agriculture Forest Service was established within the Department of Agriculture. The agency was given the mission to sustain healthy, diverse, and productive forests and grasslands for present and future generations. And now that same Forest Service is uh, uh, actually making us worship the earth rather than the creator who gave us these things. We have to protect those things at the expense of uh, our livelihood sometimes. And uh, so I would hope that they would uh, get some right management in the uh, Forest Service shortly and uh, we could get away from some of these gigantic forest, fire forest fires that are occurring right now because of the mismanagement of both state and federal governments. It's solely a reason the sole reason for this is the mismanagement of those forests. And I'll tell you that when I was, this is what happens in Colorado, it's also the same when I was out in Montana, is that any tree that's eaten and killed by these Asian beetles that came into America, they're not allowed to cut down and use for firewood. And so you've got entire sides of mountains that are covered in these dead trees, and they're not allowed to cut them down because these environmental wackos don't want this done. And now we are facing these forest fires simply because of that bad mismanagement. And of course, they're going to blame it on global warming when, in fact, that's not the case at all. Yes, it's hot in America, but that's not what's causing these fires. Anyway, on to the main brunt of our sermon today. Uh, enough of this day in history. Uh, our sermon today is going to be on Genesis 14, verses 17 through 24. And the, the main portion of it is going to be on actually only three verses. But this is called Melchizedek, greater than Levi. Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of every biblical picture and every figure which looks forward to the coming Messiah. All the way back to the time of a guy named Eusebius, the threefold office of Jesus Christ is noted, that of being the prophet, the priest, and the king. And Eusebius lived back in the second and third century. And this concept that he developed is actually have been believed to have been built on earlier Jewish sources. But in the end, it is the Bible that reveals this to those who study it and who peer into the absolutely beautiful gemstones which look forward to this coming Messiah. In Deuteronomy, we see where the great prophet is predicted who would come in the manner of Moses. It says here, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. 
him you shall hear according to all you, you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of assembly saying let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God nor let me see this great fire anymore lest I die in Jeremiah a great king is anticipated who is God incarnate here's what it says in Jeremiah and I'm going to tell you how we know that it's God incarnate that's being prefigured here he said behold the days are coming says the Lord that I will raise up to David a branch of righteousness a king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth in his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness the term in Hebrew is Jehovah Sikenu or Jehovah Sikenu and that means literally that the Lord Jehovah of the Old Testament will be in a human body and reigning from Jerusalem so that's a veiled reference to the deity the incarnation of Jesus Christ and then also in Jeremiah there's the prefiguring of a great new high priest it says behold the days are coming says the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt my covenant which they broke though I was a husband in them says the Lord now once again this doesn't explicitly say that he will be the great high priest but a new covenant implies a change in priesthood and that's something we're going to look at in the book of Hebrews today many other times in the Old Testament the uniting of the offices of the prophet and the priest and the king into one are alluded Isaiah speaks of this threefold office belonging to the Lord or to Jehovah and because they are fulfilled in Jesus Christ Isaiah's words are a veiled reference again to the deity of Jesus here's what Isaiah said for the Lord is our judge the Lord is our lawgiver the Lord is our king he will save us interestingly this same concept of a judge a lawgiver and a king was used and this is right in the writings of our founding fathers in the threefold division of our own government the king is replaced with a president because the true king of our nation is the creator to whom our leaders were recognized as being subordinate in the New Testament we see the threefold concept realized in the person of Jesus Christ if we were to look for a first picture of this though we don't need to go any further than the book of Genesis today we'll see a person show up in only three verses of chapter 17 of the book of Genesis and yet in these three verses they are so important that the author of the book of Hebrews at the end of the New Testament will spend three entire chapters speaking about them our enigmatic figure that we're going to look at in Genesis is a guy named Melchizedek and he is mentioned only 11 times in the entire Bible he's mentioned nine times in the New Testament and only twice in the Old Testament once in the passage we're going to look at today and then once by David in the Psalms now if you ever want to enter into what I would call the truly goofy you can read all kinds of crazy stuff written about this guy Melchizedek on websites you just type in his name and start reading these websites of ideas that people have of who this guy was and it's very similar to the ideas people have about the Nephilim from chapter 6 of Genesis where they believe that it's a, a race of space aliens or something but we have exactly what we need recorded in the New Testament to clearly define who Melchizedek is and what his role was the entire purpose of introducing this person in only these three verses is to simply prefigure our true prophet priest and king who is the Lord Jesus Christ 
So that brings us to our text verse today, which comes from Zechariah chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. It says, Behold the man whose name is the branch. From his place he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory and shall sit on sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. Yes, because of Jesus, there is peace between the offices of the king and the priest. And also because of Jesus, we have the full revelation of God's word as is prophetically revealed through the Holy Spirit, which came after his crucifixion. And because Jesus fulfills all three of these roles, prophet, priest, and king, May God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought of the day is introducing and explaining Melchizedek. And I want you all to know that this is going to be a little bit long. I'm going to go through three entire chapters of the book of Hebrews, and if you all need to leave, I fully understand that, because, you know, uh, in order to explain these three verses, it's the only other place we can go to. And in order to do it properly, we need to go through them. Now, I'm not going to go into a detailed account of them, but... The very fact that you're reading three chapters of Hebrews is kind of long, and you start throwing in comments, and it gets a little longer. So if you need to go, I do understand that. We're going to start, though, with verse 17 of chapter 17 of the book of... I'm sorry, it's not chapter 17. It's uh, chapter 14 of the book of Genesis. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Cato-Laomer and the kings who were with him. Now, our last sermon, just in case you weren't here, it covered a battle which occurred between the four kings from the east and the five kings who lived in the area of Sodom. When the battle was over, Avram's nephew Lot was taken captive. And Avram got together, he marshaled all of his troops together, and he went off in pursuit of Lot, and he safely brought them and all of their goods and all of the captives back with him. Now, at this verse, we see the victorious Avram being met by the king of Sodom in the valley of Shaveh. This king's name is Bera, and he was first introduced back in 14 verse 2, and then in 14 verse 10 we saw him put his tail between his legs during the battle, and off to the mountains he fled. So this is the same king, and he now comes forward to meet Avram and to receive from him what he had lost when the four kings had overthrown him and the area of Sodom. The valley of Shaveh is where they met, which is also called the King's Valley. And Shave in Hebrew means level. And it's possible that the idiom that we use to this very day, which where we say, meet me on the level, comes from this very phrase. As the, Avram, as he was returning from the slaughter of Cato-Laomer and the other three kings, may have sent this message to Bera and said, meet me at Shave or meet me on the level. Anyway, regardless of whether that's a correct analysis of that particular idiom, this is the same King's Valley, which is mentioned in the book of uh, 2 Samuel, verse, chapter 18, verse 18. And there it tells us the very sad story of a guy named Absalom, who was the son of the great king of Israel, David. Here's what it says. Now, Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up a pillar for himself, which is in the King's Valley. For he had said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and to this day it is called Absalom's Monument. Now, if you go to Israel today, and my wife, I'm sure she saw this when she was there, you can see a very large monument in this area, which is called Absalom's Monument, and it's off to the side of the Temple Mount. 
And it's not the same monument that would have been erected at the time of David, but because it's named Absalom's monument, its face is all scarred up from people throwing stones at it. And if you've ever read the full story of Absalom, you would know why. He is the son of David who tried to usurp the throne of David and exiled his father out of Jerusalem for a certain amount of time before he was killed. Anyway, verse 18 of chapter 14, it says, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Avram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. That right there is all that's recorded about Melchizedek. So the question is, why is it that he's mentioned again by David in the Psalms and is referred to for three entire chapters of the book of Hebrews? There's obviously a lot more in these verses that we just read than you may, may seem to glean right at the beginning. So what we're going to do is we're going to read those three chapters of Hebrews. But before we do, before we get into reading what David said and what Hebrews says, I'll tell you that even in antiquity, the great high priest of God did a blessing over bread and wine. And this is something that we do even to this day. We do it every week at church on the beach where we take communion. And what it was doing, even back in the book of Genesis, was prefiguring the sacrifice of Jesus Christ who was to come. And he is the Messiah, which Melchizedek was prefiguring. Here's what David says, and we read this before the sermon in the 110th Psalm about Melchizedek. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now that might not seem very instructive, but it's based on what David said in the first two verses of the 110th Psalm. So I'm gonna read you that. I'm gonna skip the third verse, and I'll read the fourth verse again. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. And then verse four, and will not relent. Uh, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, the words that David is writing in the Psalms are very clear. He says, the Lord, Jehovah, has sworn and will not relent. I'm sorry, the Lord, Jehovah, said to my Lord, Adonai. Now, just so you know, both of those terms are used exclusively for God in the Old Testament. Jehovah is the name, the divine name of God, and then Adonai is a term that means my Lord, but it is only used in the Bible referring to deity. And Jesus used this very verse, he quoted in the New Testament, to explain something about the coming Messiah that the scribes of his time had missed. Here's what it says. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. They knew that he would come from the line of David. He would be a human being. That's as clearly evident from the Old Testament. as You just can't make any mistake about that. Jesus said to them, he said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord, Adonai, saying, the Lord Jehovah said to my Adonai, both terms for God, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word nor from that day did anyone dare question him anymore. It's quite apparent that he is speaking about this as the incarnation of someone who is coming, God incarnate. And that's what Jesus was trying to get them to think through, but they rejected that. The Lord said to my Lord. So you have 
a man that is coming that is fully human and also fully God. Now we're going to read Hebrews 5 through 7, and we're going to discover why Melchizedek is mentioned in only these three verses in Genesis, but they're so important under our understanding the work of Jesus Christ. But before I do, I want to tell you one thing. If you are ever going to witness to a Jewish person, I would recommend you take them to one of two books in the New Testament, either the book of Matthew or the book of Hebrews. And the reason why is because Matthew is specifically written to the Jewish mind. He's being presented by Matthew as the king of Israel. And he does all kinds of quotes from the Old Testament, which are fulfilled in the New Testament. He gives the quote, and then he gives the fulfillment. And Jewish people will understand that better than the other three gospel accounts. The book of Hebrews explains the messianic role as being fulfilled by Jesus in every possible way. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than the high priest, etc. The, basically, the theme of the book of Hebrews is greater than. And it all centers on the work of Jesus Christ and how everything he does is greater than what was presented in the Old Testament. Just so you know that in case you ever do witness to a Jewish person. Now we're going to start with Hebrews chapter 5 verse 1. And we're just going to go through here. And I'll try not to get too lengthy on this. But I want you to understand who this Melchizedek is and why he is so clearly presented in those three verses. When they don't seem to fit any other thing in the Old Testament. For every high priest is taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. What he's saying there is that the high priest is a human being. He's taken from among other men, and he's appointed for the things of God. You have God, you have man. Man cannot speak with God without a mediator. I'm sorry, if you're not a Christian and you're speaking to God in prayers, it is going nowhere. God does not hear your prayers, and the Bible explains why. It's because your sins separate you from your God. We need a mediator between ourselves and God in order to speak to him, and that's what the high priest is being selected for. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is also subject to weakness. The entire point of picking a human being to be a mediator between God and man is because he is also able to sympathize or empathize with the weakness of the other men that are coming, saying, I've sinned in your presence. And so he, he can feel the weakness when he goes to bed at night, and he can feel the temptation in his mind of whatever things are going on in your mind. That is the point of having a man, that he can sympathize with the people, and he can be an acceptable mediator between God and man. Because of this, he is required, as for the people, so offer for so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sins. Now what this is saying, this goes back to the book of Leviticus, chapter 16. It's the Day of Atonement explained in detail. Before the high priest of Israel could sacrifice for the sins of the people, he would sacrifice a goat for the sins of the people, he had to slaughter a bull, and he had to take the blood of that bull behind the veil of the presence to the Holy of Holies, and he'd have to offer that on his behalf. And if he didn't do that, if he just sacrificed for the sins of the people first, without sacrificing for himself, he would have died behind that veil. And they would have had to have dragged his dead body out from behind that veil because nobody else was allowed to go back there. So what they do is they tie a rope around him, and when he was back there ministering, he had bells on the end of his garment. And they'd hear those bells tinkling. Well, if those bells stopped or they heard a thunk, they'd drag his dead body out. He had to do everything very precisely, but he had his own sinful nature. And so he had to sacrifice for his own sins before he went behind, or actually when he went behind the 
Baal, and then he would sacrifice for the people of Israel. And then verse 4, And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. Aaron was selected as the high priest of Israel. God selected him. Now, you would ask yourself when you're reading the uh, Old Testament, well, gee whiz, why didn't he have uh, Moses as the high priest of God? Here's this great man of God. He's done all of these things. He redeems the people through the, uh, the Red Sea, and he leads them out. And uh, actually, the Lord is the one that redeemed them. But why didn't he just make him the high priest? Because one person fulfilled one role, and one person fulfilled another role. Moses was the great prophet. We also need a great high priest. We also need... Um, uh, a, a king and so they didn't fulfill each other's roles and throughout the Old Testament when somebody tried to step over those boundaries and perform another role God would judge them if you know the story of King Uzziah he was the king of Israel he wanted to do some of the priestly functions he went behind the uh, veil he went to present the uh, incense actually I don't think he went behind the veil but he went into the temple to present the incense of the Lord which belongs as a duty to the priests and he got leprosy and the rest of his life he had to be kept separate from the people of Israel because of that. The Lord does not want people treading on the different offices until the time of Jesus Christ came and united those offices. So Aaron was called by God as a human being to minister for the people. And then verse 5, so also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. God eternally begotten, Jesus Christ was eternally begotten of the Father. He was chosen by God before the world was created. I myself will step out of eternity into human flesh. And Jesus Christ is the chosen vehicle, fully man and fully God. Verse six, as he says in another place, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now he quotes the 110th Psalm, which I just read. David is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit with only those three obscure verses from Genesis to make his prophecy. You've got this guy that shows up. Abraham presents himself before him, and the guy blesses Abraham. He says, blessed be God, and then he uh, uh, does a blessing over the bread and wine, and then he receives a tenth of the spoils, and that's all we have. And David, with just that limited information, says, you are a priest forever, speaking about the coming Messiah, according to the order of Melchizedek. Well, what does that mean? We're going to have to wait until chapter 7 to actually figure this out. But it's kind of an obscure thing to say over three even more obscure verses. Anyway, verse 7. Um, according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, meaning Jesus Christ, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. And we know the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, how he suffered, how he was uh, in anguish. He actually prayed and anguished, uh, agonized until he had sweat of blood coming out of him, tears like blood running out of him. And he said, Lord, if you'll take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. He was obedient even to the death on the cross. And because of that, he was rewarded with the eternal life of the faithful servant of God. It says here, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Now we're gonna go back for a second. We're gonna remember that the high priest is the one that had to have empathy with the people. If he didn't have empathy, then he couldn't be a, a, a sufficient mediator for the people. And so Jesus Christ took on the flesh and he suffered so that he could have empathy with us in our own trials. 
it says, and having been perfected, verse 9, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. All right, I want you to remember, if you don't remember anything else from this sermon today, if you remember that one verse, Jesus Christ is the author of eternal salvation. If you call on the name of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and I don't care what any teacher tells you differently in the future, salvation is eternal. You can never, never, never lose your salvation. If you are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, it has the saving power to continue to save you forever. And then it says, to all who obey him. Obey in this context is synonymous with the word believe. He wants us to believe that he can save us from ourselves. And when we do that, when we call on him and say, I'm a sinner, I need to be saved, and I want you to be my savior, it's done eternal salvation that one thing i want you to remember if nothing else because i'm going to get long-winded for the next two and a half chapters all right it says in verse 10 called by god as high priest just as aaron was called but it says here according to the order of melchizedek well once again melchizedek is introduced and we don't understand why he's called as a high priest according to the order of melchizedek but it's not explained yet so we'll get to it in a minute of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Now, he's going to rebuke every one of you and me as well. So I want you to pay attention to what he says about our walk with Jesus Christ. Verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, and I'm, I don't want anybody to raise your hand, but I want you to answer this to yourself. Have you been a Christian more than two years? Don't answer it, just to yourself answer that question, and the people on the video too. Have you been a, a, a Christian more than two years? For Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. Now, he's going to explain what the first principles are, and then he's going to kind of explain what milk and solid food is. And I want you to know that if you've been a Christian for a couple of years and you could not faithfully explain these first principles that he's going to give, then you need to read your Bible more, and you need to play the we less. You need to go to less movies. You need to stop, you know, messing around with iPods and all that. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. Do it. But you need to know your Bible because these are first principles, according to the author of Hebrews, that every Christian should know. And they should know them very, very quickly and how to explain them. So this is a rebuke for every Christian that reads the book of Hebrews. All right, we're going to go on. Um, verse 13. For everyone who partakes of only milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. Now, when I give a sermon, and a lot of people don't like the way I do it because I give doctrine. I don't give life applications. And most people go to churches all around the world, and they want the pastor to tell them how to live their life for the week or how to live their life for a particular circumstance. And I don't believe that is the right way to teach God's Word. I believe that when we give a sermon, if people know the Word, they can apply the Word to their life rather than applying their life to the Word that's given. Okay, that's why I give these detailed sermons, because I want people to be on meat and not on milk. Okay, verse 14. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, leaving... Now, he's going to give the first principles right now. I asked you to remember that one thing, eternal salvation. Please don't ever forget that, and it's going to be explained here in a couple more verses or I'm going to explain something that people use against eternal salvation in a couple verses. But I want you to at least listen, even if you don't remember them, what these first principles are 
and ask yourself as I'm giving them to you if you can properly defend them as a Christian to other Christians or to people that disagree with why you believe what you believe. Can you do this? Because if not, then you are on milk and not on solid food. And the author of Hebrews is speaking directly to you. Here we go. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. How many of you can properly defend that principle? The second one, of the doctrine of baptisms. Do you know why a certain type of baptism is acceptable according to the Bible and why a certain type of baptism isn't acceptable? And I got to tell you, this fits right in with not just water baptism, it fits in with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When do you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Can you receive it more than once? These are all tied up in that one thing. If you can't defend that, then you should probably send me an email and I'll give you an explanation. And then don't believe me, you check what I tell you. Because anybody that believes me is making a fundamental error. The Bible is the Word of God. All I do is interpret it and I do the best I can. But check what you're told, regardless of who is the one teaching you. That's the second doctrine of laying on of hands. Laying on of hands is mentioned a couple times in the Bible. I'll give you just two examples. One is when you're healing somebody and the other is when you are ordaining somebody as a minister. Now, can you identify and defend why somebody is or isn't uh, acceptable as a minister of God? And can you identify when a person is, can be healed or should be healed or what the procedure is for that? Those are first principles. So if you can't do that, then he is calling you a babe in the word. And these are very detailed. I got to tell you what, when I read these and I was getting ready for this sermon, I'd read this probably 50 times in the past. I never sat down and thought these things through. I was actually embarrassed. I thought, man, you know, this has got to get it right off the, the end of your uh, tongue. There's a lot involved in these things. All right, here's another one. Of resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. That's two separate ones there. But the resurrection of the dead is covered in detail in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and it's also mentioned in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But it's also mentioned in the book of Revelation, and there are several resurrections of the dead. And he's saying these are all elementary first principles. So how embarrassing it is for me to look at this and say, you know, I'd have to go and study up before I talk to somebody about this. And then finally, of eternal judgment. What is eternal judgment? Who does it apply to? Are Christians going to be judged for certain things, or are they completely free from any judgment at all? Well, I'll give you the answer to that. All Christians will be judged. It's called the Bema Seat of Christ. We're going to go up and we're going to receive judgment based on rewards and loss of rewards. Okay, you can't be judged for your salvation once you come to Jesus Christ. Anyway, now we're going to go into the three most difficult verses in the entire Bible for many people. And I want to tell you, if you attend the Church of God, if you attend the, uh, any Armenian church, Mennonites, uh, the Methodist church, they will use these following three verses to defend why you can lose your salvation. All right? And I can assure you that they are misreading these verses. I'm going to wait till this guy flies over and I'll start speaking again. And we're going to have to go through this. I'm sorry, today is the uh, regatta, and so it may get busy and a little noisy out here. Anyway, let's go ahead and go over these three verses. This is Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. And I want you to understand why you can never lose your salvation and how these three verses have nothing to do with that issue. All right. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come 
if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Now, most people, when they read that, say, see, you can lose your salvation. You re-crucify the Son of God and you are lost. That's not what that's talking about at all. So I'm going to ask a question, and I want somebody here to answer this. Who is the book of Hebrews written to? To the Hebrews, okay? It is written in the New Testament, but it's written to the Jewish people, to the Hebrews. That's why it's called Hebrews. A second question, which I will answer for you, is was the temple still standing when this was written? And the answer is yes. And it is also not only looking to the uh, past, it's also looking to forward to a future temple which will stand in Jerusalem. It is spoken to Jewish believers who are the stewards of the oracles of God. They had the oracles of God. They knew that the Christ was coming. When he was there, he gave them one unpardonable sin, and that was the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And that was only possible in the context that it's written in for the time when Jesus walked on this earth. There is another blasphemy of the Holy Spirit for each of us as Christians, and that is if we fail, or not Christians, but as people, we are given the chance to repent and turn to Jesus Christ throughout our entire life until the last breath of our life. And when we've issued our last breath and we haven't accepted Jesus Christ, that is the unpardonable sin for the people after the time of Jesus. But at the time of Jesus, they had the oracles of God, which all pointed to the coming Messiah. He had the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in him. They saw it. They could not put the two together. And he says, it's an unpardonable sin that you would reject me when I am the one that is being spoken of in these verses. So what he's speaking about here in these verses, it is impossible for those who were once enlightened. This is Jewish people that have seen the power of the Holy Spirit working in other Jewish people. The temple is still standing. They know that Jesus Christ fulfilled all of the priestly roles of Israel, all of the prophetic roles of Israel, and all of the king, kingly roles of Israel. That's been testified to them. They've seen the power of that. They've tasted of that. And yet they say, I'm going back to the temple and I'm going to sacrifice. And he says, you can never be saved by those sacrifices. That is what it's speaking of. It's not speaking about anybody that's called on the name of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So don't ever let anybody use those three verses against your eternal salvation. It is a misapplication and a misunderstanding of the context of who is being spoken to. Don't mean to get so long on that, but those are very important for you to understand. Verse seven, for the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. Okay, you're a person that has called on the name of Jesus Christ. He's using you as an allegory. You receive the blessings of God the moment you call on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. If you don't accept Christ, you never become fruitful as a Christian, then off to burning you go. And I don't want to get into hell today, but anyway, it is a subject that we can't deny. Um, verse 9, but beloved, and here now he's speaking to people that have accepted Jesus Christ. He calls them beloved, all right? So obviously what he's saying about those first three verses cannot be applied to the people he's now addressing. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. He's saying, these things apply here, these things apply to you, and we're happy about that, basically, is what he's saying. 
For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have showed towards his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Just a little note of asking the people that he's writing to, don't become sluggish. And if you want a very good uh, example of that, go to 2 Peter and read the first chapter. He talks about a person that is called on the name of Jesus Christ, and then he starts explaining what they should do. He says, you know, add to your faith uh, perseverance and perseverance, brotherly love, and all this. And he goes through this list of things. And then when he gets done with this list of things, of the progression of a faithful believer, he says, but somebody who doesn't possess these things is short-sighted. And he says something like, um, and he has forgotten that he has been washed from his previous sins. In other words, what Peter is saying there is a person that doesn't do what's being told here and what Peter told them there, eventually they just forget that they're saved. And there are people in this world, and I believe a lot of professing atheists, professing atheists are saved believers. They came to know God probably when they were young in a church. They call on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and they're in a church that teaches you can lose your salvation. And the pastor says, well, you've done this and you can never be saved now. And they go off and they spend the rest of their life living miserably. And they start fighting against God. And I have a feeling that some of these people that are actively like that are people that were saved when they were young. They're disillusioned and yet God has not forgotten the call of faith in their lives. And so Peter actually proves that when he says that these people have forgotten that they were cleansed from their past sins. And yes, it is possible. So add to your faith diligence and perseverance and godliness and brotherly love, and these things won't happen. And read your Bible every single day. I say this almost every sermon, but I'll ask it again. Does anybody know how long it takes to read the Bible audibly? It takes 77 hours. If you read your Bible 30 minutes a day out loud, which you usually read quicker when you're reading to yourself, 30 minutes a day, you can read your Bible in 154 days. That means you can read it twice in a year if you only read it 30 minutes a day. And I know it's hard. I, every night before I go to bed, I have to force myself sometimes to read because I'm tired. First thing in the morning, last thing at night, and all throughout the day I'm reading my Bible. But I got to tell you what, it is worth it because the Bible reveals Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ reveals the unseen Father, and there is no other way to know God without the pages of the Bible. That's why the last book of the Bible is called Revelation. He is revealing the final picture of who he is until he comes again. Please read your Bibles. All right. He goes on in uh, verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. When God speaks, it is a swear all by itself because there's nothing greater in the universe for him to speak by. So the very word that proceeds out of the mouth of God is his word. It is a swear or in, uh, it, it is something that is inviolable. All right. He swore by himself saying, surely blessing, I will bless you and multiplying, I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Speaking of Abraham, for men indeed swear by the greater and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. He's saying that when we go into a courtroom, for example, and they have us put our hand, our right hand on the Bible and we make a vow in the name of the Lord. And we say, I swear by this that I am telling the truth. And that is why in our nation, in the founding of our nation, and unfortunately we've fallen away from this, an atheist was not allowed to testify in court because he has no moral basis on which he is making his vow. 
And to this day, atheists are not allowed to hold public office in the state of Tennessee according to the Constitution. Now, I know they've forgotten that, but it's still written in their Constitution. An atheist has no moral grounding, and therefore, it doesn't matter what he swears by. He can swear by his mother's grave. It means nothing. All right, that's what he's saying here. He said, um, men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. So not only has God spoken, which is the highest, uh, it is the, the most sound thing in the universe, the very fact that he speaks. And this book here is God's word. It can never be changed, it can never be added to, it can never be taken from. Once God spoke these words, it was sealed. And so it will come to pass, and there's nothing more sure than this word. And he's saying that, but in order to confirm his own word for the sake of Abraham, he confirmed it by an oath. And if you remember, uh, we'll talk about it in Genesis 15, but if you've read the story, God had Abraham take animals, split them two, in two down the middle, and place them side by side. And then at night, a smoking pot and a torch went through there. And that was the manifestation of God going through those pieces of the divided animals. Those animals died. And when they made a covenant, the people would do the same thing. And they would say, if I don't uphold my half of this covenant, I receive the same sentence as these animals have received. And God himself was saying that what I am telling you now is so true that if it doesn't come true, I, I, God wouldn't be God. It is impossible. He actually confirmed his own word by an oath to Abraham. Now, all this is building up to Melchizedek. I want you to know, it's not just something that we're talking about. So, the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled, ref, fled for refuge to lay hope to lay hold of the hope set before us. Verse 19, this hope, and it ought to be capital here, it's not, it, it's uh, inserted word, so the word hope isn't actually in there, but because it's in there, it ought to be capital. This hope we have as an anchor for the soul, full, sure, and steadfast, which and which enters the presence behind the veil. What it's speaking of is when Jesus Christ died, if you remember, when he died, the veil was rent, okay? That was a picture of access to God being restored for us. We can now enter the Holy of Holies. But before that actually happened, Jesus Christ himself went behind the heavenly Holy of Holies and he presented himself as a sacrifice on our behalf. And we'll get to that in just a second. This hope we have as an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast in which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Once again, Melchizedek, the importance of these three verses cannot be under, understated. He's brought up again, and we're still not explained what does that mean according to the order of Melchizedek. But Jesus Christ himself went behind the veil to the presence, and that is called in the book of Hebrews an anchor. It is something that's sure. Unless you, you know, you got an anchor, the anchor isn't going to come up out of the ground. The rope may break, right? And we had that happen during the tropical storm last week. Lots of boats uh, floated up on the shore, but the anchor holds, and Jesus Christ is our anchor. And I can assure you that when you're weak and you let go of him, he has got his arms right around you. He will never let you go. You are saved eternally by the blood of Jesus Christ. We're going to go on to chapter 7. We're almost done with these three chapters, and then we'll get into a short portion. We'll be done. Uh, verse 1, for this Melchizedek, 
king of Salem, priest of Most High God, who met Avram, or Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, which we just read about, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all. First being translated king of righteousness. His name Melchizedek. Melchizedek means king, Melke, and Tzedek, or Tzedekah, righteousness. All right, and then also king of Salem means king of peace. So do you see somebody maybe from elsewhere in the Old Testament that's being prefigured by this Melchizedek? The king of righteousness. If you remember, we read that verse from uh, Jeremiah speaking of the king to come and it says, the Lord our righteousness. He will rule from the throne of Jerusalem. Okay, so Melchizedek is prefiguring Jesus Christ. And then king of Salem. Well, where do we hear of king of peace elsewhere in the Old Testament? We hear Isaiah, what, 9, verse 6, I believe it says, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Jesus Christ is fulfilling these roles which are only prefigured by this person, Melchizedek. Without father, without mother, without genealogy. Now we're going to understand why Melchizedek is mentioned and only in those, sorry, these three verses. I held up two fingers and got one stuck. I couldn't let go of it. Anyway, the reason why Melchizedek is mentioned in three verses only and nothing else is said about him is to prefigure Jesus Christ. There is no, this does not mean that he wasn't a human being. What this means is that there's no record of his birth. There's no record of him growing up. There's no record of his death. Just like Jesus Christ, because there's no record of him, it is implicitly stating that he is a high priest forever. He never died. Even if he did die, the point is that there's no record of it. And that's why it's not given in there. So it says, this Melchizedek, uh, king of Salem, priest of God most high. I need to go down a little bit. It says, um, I'm sorry, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the son of God, remains a priest continually. And that's why David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in the 110th Psalm said to someone who is coming, the Lord has said to my Lord, he's sworn this thing, he says, you are a priest forever on the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is priest of God most high. That office never ended because there's no end to it recorded in the Bible, regardless of whether the guy died. All right, now consider how great this man was, speaking of Melchizedek to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. He's going to make a point that we shouldn't miss, and so I'm going to explain it first, is that we are all in Adam as human beings. And we're in Adam three separate ways. We are in Adam legally, we are in Adam potentially, and we are in Adam seminally. And that is borne out in the Bible, but this is going to be one of the proofs of that right there. What, what it means is that Adam was created by God, and he is our first father. Adam sinned, and when he sinned, we inherited Adam's sin before we did anything wrong. That is why all people are condemned from the moment they're born. And Jesus says that in uh, John 3:18. He says, those who believe in the Son are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already. And this is gonna bear this out. We're legally in Adam. And here's an example so everybody understands. Barack Obama right now is our president. Okay, when he signs a law, whether you voted for him or whether you didn't vote for him, he is our president. He signs a law, we are to obey that law. We are under our federal head, who is Barack Obama. At one time it was Bill Clinton, at one time it was George Washington. What they have issued stands, whether we like it or not, whether we voted for them or not. Hang on one sec here. 
That's the legal way. Then we have potentially. All people are in Adam potentially. Now I'm going to give you an example. We've got people here, husbands and wives, and they may have no children, or they may have two children, or they may have ten children, and they could have more after that. We have potentially any number of children in us. Now, if I was a polygamist, I could have 15 wives, and I could have wives, children with every one of them. Potentially, there are all kinds of children in me, and every human being on earth comes from one man from Adam. So all people are potentially in Adam at that moment. And that's confirmed in the book of Acts chapter 17. It says, from one man, he created all men. All men. That's why, you know, I've said this in many sermons in the past, and I'll say it again today because, are you Roz? You're not Roz. Okay, I, I have a friend, Roz, that's coming one of these days, and I haven't seen her. But I've said this in many sermons, is that Racism is the stupidest thing on the face of the earth because all we're doing when we're racist towards somebody else is we're being racist against ourselves. All this is is pigmentation. I'm darker than her and she's darker than you and he's darker. It makes no difference. It is the stupidest concept on the face of the earth and that is what is being said right there in the book of Acts, okay? Legally, potentially, and seminally. What seminally means is we are actually alive. Now. I could have had a child and that child died, but it was still alive until the moment it died. We are seminally in Adam. So legally, potentially, and seminally, we're in Adam. And this is the point he's gonna make right here. He says, um, uh, where was I? Uh, now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who received the priesthood, remember, God selected Aaron is the first high priest. He was from the tribe of Levi, and all of the people who were priests in Israel were from the tribe of Levi. He says, who received the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law. So the people of Israel were required to give a tenth of what they made away. Okay, now I want to explain something about tithes right now, and I don't mean to get long-winded on this, but this is one subject that I, I'm so against people preaching tithing in churches. Can anybody tell me how often they gave away their 10% their tithe to uh, uh, the priests? Can anybody tell that? It was once every third year. The other two years of the tithe, they took their tithe and they spent it on themselves and they had a big party before the Lord down in Jerusalem. Tithing, go to Deuteronomy chapter 14 if you want to read about tithing. Start with verse 22 and go right down to the end of the chapter. Tithing in the Old Testament, which is an Old Testament concept, it has nothing to do with the New Testament, was to give away 10% every third year. Okay, so remember Deuteronomy chapter 14, starting at verse 22, and then I want you to remember Deuteronomy 26, verse 12, which says, in the year, the third year, the year of the tithe, and then in Amos 4, 4, it says it again. Some translations get it wrong. It says, uh, bring your tithes every three days. It actually should be translated, bring your tithes every three years. The word is yamim in Hebrew, it can mean either. But tithing that you gave away in the Old Testament was once every three years. The other two years you were to have a party with your family at Jerusalem and thank the Lord for his abundant blessings, okay? And it does say to take care of the Levites with your other two years of tithes. So that's your pastor, that's your church that you regularly attend. Please take care of those people because that's the only thing they have to live on. And most churches already have something set up to pay them anyway. But uh, there you go, that's tithing. But what he says here, the whole point of what he's saying is that uh, they receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. All of the people of Israel, 
All of the 12 tribes of Israel came from Abraham, just as we all come from Adam, okay? And the Levites received the tithes from those people, and then they gave a 10% of that to the, the priestly class, all right? But what he's saying here, now listen to this as far as us being in Adam. He says, um, uh, they, I got to find where I was, and I apologize for losing my place, but I get a little long-winded. Um, uh, though they have come from the loins of Abraham, but he whose genealogy is not derived from them, Melchizedek, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. God made a promise to Abraham, and now he's going to show how absolutely great Melchizedek was, because even though Abraham received the promises, Abraham gave 10% to somebody that didn't have the promises. It shows the absolute greatness of this man, Melchizedek. All right, now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Abraham did not bless Melchizedek. In other words, Melchizedek must be greater than Abraham, who all people of faith on the face of the earth claim sonship to, and especially the people of Israel. The people of Israel could look at Melchizedek and say he is greater than our father Abraham, just as we can. The lesser is blessed by the better. Here, mortal men receive tithes. The people of Israel give their tithes to mortal men. It says, where was, I'm sorry, my, my page just blow. Uh, okay, eight. Okay, here mortal men receive tithes, but there he, Melchizedek, received them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives Okay, he never died. There's no record of his death in the Bible. And so he is still alive. Now listen to the point he's going to make about this. Even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Abraham is the father of Isaac. Isaac is the father of Israel. Israel's the father of Levi. Every time that a person in Israel paid tithes to Levi, Levi would pay tithes to his father Israel, to his father Isaac, to his father Abraham, and Abraham would give 10% to Melchizedek. And that's an eternal giving of that. It doesn't go away. And that's showing the greatness of Melchizedek. And it's saying that somebody is coming on the order of Melchizedek, somebody greater than the high priest of Israel, somebody greater than Moses, somebody greater than the angels and all these other greater thans that are in the book of Hebrews. So if you see what's going on, these people are legally, potentially, and seminally in their father Abraham, all of them, and they're giving money to Melchizedek. That's the greatness of Melchizedek, and I hope you're beginning to understand why those three verses about Melchizedek are mentioned, all right? It says, therefore, if perfection were from the Levitical priesthood, for under it, the people received the law, okay? He's gonna make a point about the Levitical priesthood now. The law is received at Mount Sinai. The Levitical priesthood is what established, was established based on that law. If perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek? If this priesthood could make people perfect, then why would we need another priest according to the order of Melchizedek? And that's what David is saying in the Psalm. He's prophesying that somebody is coming who will make something better than what the law of Moses has made. Okay, he says, um, and not being called according to the order of Aaron. Aaron is from Levi, Levi is from Israel. All right, he says, for the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change in the law. For he of whom these things are spoken 
belongs to another tribe. Does anybody know where Jesus, what tribe he belonged to? Tribe of Judah. Levi was the priestly class. Judah is where the kings were from, but it was just another tribe of Israel. They paid their tithes to Levi. Okay, it says he came from another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. As I said, King Uzziah tried to, and he was uh, got leprosy, and he was banished for the rest of his life because of what he did. He was not to be a priest in God's economy of the Old Testament. Verse 14, for it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning a priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, the law of Moses, but according to the power of an endless life. And now he quotes again what David said in the Psalms, for he testifies you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Every single priest in Israel did his service and he died. But somebody is coming who would be on the order of Melchizedek who would never, never, never die. Verse 18, for on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment, meaning the law of Moses. Three times explicitly it says in the book of Hebrews that the law of Moses is over. It is done. That includes the Ten Commandments. And I said that a while ago and somebody walked away before I explained that. The Ten Commandments are over. So why is it that we cannot kill another person? Thou shalt not kill. It's because it's repeated in the New Testament. Everything about the Old Testament is done. It only prefigured the greater work of Jesus Christ. Why is it that we are not to covet? Because it's repeated in the New Testament. Nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. One is not. Does anybody know which one it is? Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. It says in Hebrews 4.3, Now we who believe do enter that rest. That's why we worship Jesus Christ on Sunday, the day he rose out of the grave. And we don't have a Saturday Sabbath. Saturday Sabbath is impossible to fulfill anyway. The whole Old Testament points to that. But that's why we don't have a Saturday Sabbath. So don't be scared when I say the Ten Commandments are over. Nine of them were reinstituted in the New Testament. Now, okay, it says the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. The law was given for a reason, but it was weak and it was unprofitable. It was given for two specific reasons, according to Paul. One was to show us how utterly sinful sin is and that we can't save ourselves by trying to do deeds of the law. And the second reason was as a tutor to lead us to Jesus Christ. It's to take us by our hand and say, you can't do it. This law proves that you are a fallen man in Adam and I've got something better for you waiting at the cross of Calvary. Okay, got my hair standing up with that. It says here, for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God, and that's Jesus Christ. Verse 20, and inasmuch as he was not made a priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath. The priests of the Old Testament were made priests, and there was no oath involved. God just said to Moses, Aaron is the high priest, and after him will be his sons all the way down the line. There's no oath with it. They were just instituted as the high priest. But he, Jesus, with an oath by whom it was said. Now he goes right back to David again. The Lord has sworn, that's an oath, and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus Christ has an eternal life, an indestructible life, because of his victory over sin and death on our behalf. All right? And he is a priest forever. 
on the order of Melchizedek, a man who has no record of birth, a man who has no record of death. He is a priest forever. 22, by so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. The Old Testament was fallible. It had flaws in it, and it doesn't mean from God. It has flaws because of us, our nature. It could not save us. It could only lead us to the need for Jesus Christ, okay? A better covenant. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. Aaron died, his son died, his son died. You know what Caiaphas, the high priest that uh, tried Jesus Christ, they found his ossuary, an ossuary is a bone box. They actually found it in Israel with his bones in it, okay? The high priest Caiaphas is just as dead as all the other priests of Israel. They were humans and they served their time and off they went, all right? Jesus Christ died and was resurrected because he never sinned. The wages of sin is death. He never sinned and so he came back to life. Okay, but he continue because he continues forever has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Once again, remember what I said. Remember two words: eternal salvation. He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to him. There is no loss of a person that calls on Jesus Christ in faith. I don't care how bad you are after that; you are saved. And what you will lose is your rewards not your salvation. Jesus Christ's blood is infinitely capable of saving every human being. It says here, <clears throat> um, able to save to the uttermost those who come to him through to God through him since he always makes intercession for them. Jesus Christ right now is standing in his heavenly throne mediating, interceding for us to God saying, I know he sinned, but my blood has covered his sin. I know he sinned again, but my blood is covered as sin. He is there always interceding for us. Verse 26, for such a high priest, meaning Jesus was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices for his own sins and then for the people's. Remember what I talked about back at the Day of Atonement. The high priest had to sacrifice a bull for himself, and then a goat for the people of Israel. He didn't have to sacrifice for his own sins. He was the sacrifice for all the sins of the world. And he was undefiled, so there was no sacrifice necessary for his own sins. He never committed any. First for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Verse 28, last of the chapter. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness. But the word of oath which came after the law, the oath which is spoken of, the Lord has sworn and uh, will not relent. You are high priest forever. That word of oath, which came after the law, David wrote it after the law was given, appoints the son who has been perfected forever. Hallelujah to the Lamb of God for that. He has prevailed on our behalf where the high priest could never do it. All he could do was intercede for one year for the sins of the people, asking for mercy one more year. If those Bulls and goats could have brought the people near to God. They would have ended the first year that the temple was erected. And yet it went on for 1,500 years, sacrificing bulls and goats, saying, we need something better. We need something better. And yes, something better came, and it's Jesus Christ our Lord. Brings us to our second thought. It's a short thought, but I have to finish this chapter today. It's Avram's wisdom. I know that we've covered a whole bunch of ground, and the one thing that I want you to remember is eternal salvation. If you don't pull anything else out of this, eternal salvation. And one second note that I'd like you to remember is that we need to be on meat and not on milk, and the only way to get onto meat is to read your Bible and to know it. And the more you read your Bible, the more it will weave together in your mind. 
sometimes people jump ahead and they try to read the Bible, you know, the book of Revelation and do an analysis on the book of Revelation. You cannot do it unless you understand the entire Bible. He refers to the Old Testament like 348 times in the book of Revelation. How can you know what he's talking about here unless you know that? And if you read it, 154 days, 30 minutes a day, you will be done with the Bible. Read it every day of your life. By the time you get old and gray, you may be able to read it 25 or 30 times. And I tell you what, that's not even beginning to touch it. How wonderful the word is from God. But now we're going to talk about the wisdom that Avram displayed when he was, uh, came before the king of Sodom. Here's verse 21. Now the king of Sodom said to Avram, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. The king of Sodom rightly acknowledges that Avram has the right to all of the booty recovered in the war and he only asks for his people back. And this is an ancient tradition which goes all the way back to the beginning of time and it is the inviolable rule of war. Any land and any possession that is won in war becomes the rightful possession of the victors of that war. Now there are occasionally, and I mean very infrequently, people that don't do this. And I'll give you one example right now, which I'm very proud to say that I'm a citizen of the United States of America, because America has defeated people all over the world. We, my wife's from Japan, we beat them and they give, gave us an unconditional surrender. We could have gone in there and we could have made them do anything we wanted. It was unconditional. We could have said, you're now going to speak English. You're now going to be Christians. You're going to do this and that. And we didn't do it. We gave them their society back. We gave their money back. We gave their entire culture, their religion, their language, everything. And we did that in the Philippines. And we did that in Iraq. And we did it in Afghanistan. We've done it all over the world where we've gone in and defeated our enemies. And then we've said, we want to make peace with you. And we want you to keep what you have and to have your own dignity. One exception. There's one other exception in the world and I mean in the history of the world, and it is being forced on the victors, even as we're speaking. Even as we're here right now, there are people that are forcing this on the victors, and that is the land of Israel. In 1948, they beat their enemies. In 1967, they beat their enemies, and they gained Jerusalem, they gained the West Bank, and they gained the Gaza Strip. And they also gained the Sinai Peninsula, but they graciously gave it to Egypt as an offer of peace. It was about 10 times the size of the land they have. And they said, no, we're going to give this back to you to make peace with you. All right. They won that in war. And then in 1973 at the Yom Kippur War, they won again. They are the victors and they are entitled to what they have won. And the world right now is coming against them and they're trying to divide that land. Do you know that in the north of Italy, there is land that was once a part of Germany, but in that war, it became a part of Italy. And they speak both languages now and they have this kind of identity crisis, but nobody's telling them they have to give it back. The borders which changed over Poland and all of these other areas all belong to those countries. The day before Japan surrendered, the day before, it was already a done deal. Russia declared war on Japan and they went down there and they assumed control of the Karelian Islands. And nobody is saying to Russia, you gotta give that back, nobody. And yet Israel is being forced to give this land back. And I gotta tell you what, read Joel chapter three, verses one and two, and you will see what is coming on the nations of the world because of what we are doing. It says, I will bring you down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and there I will judge you, all the nations of the world, because you have divided my land. Again and again and again in the Old Testament, God gave the land to the people of Israel. He says, this is my land, and I'm giving it to them as an internal right 
and we're trying to divide that, and the judgment of the nations is coming on us because of that. We need to be very careful in our dealings with Israel. What was rightfully won is being slowly stolen away from them, and that is where we're heading. Let's go on to verse 22. But Avram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Avram rich, except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them take their portion. Instead of exercising his right to all of the spoils of the war, Avram made a vow with his hand upraised to the possessor of heaven and earth, the one true God, that he wouldn't accept anything personally from the king of Sodom. By using the same term that Melchizedek did in his blessing, which is the possessor of heaven and earth, he's acknowledging directly in front of the king of Sodom that he is worshiping the same true creator God that Melchizedek is honoring. And in this vow, which he made with that uplifted hand, Avram said that he would not accept anything from a thread to a sandal strap. The word thread here is the word chut. It's a Hebrew word, and it's something that a woman would tie to hold up her hair. And then a sandal strap was used by men. When they went off to war, they had these sandals that they needed to tie down. And so they take this little piece of leather and they tie it down so that their shoe wouldn't fall off while they're in battle. And so what he is saying is he would not take anything from either a man or a woman from their head to their foot. I want nothing from you. The only thing that he would accept from the king of Sodom was what his men had eaten on the way to the battle, at the battle, and on the way back from the battle. And along with Avram went those three Amorites, Mamre, Eskol, and what was the other guy's name? He said, let them have whatever they want from the spoils, but I'll take nothing from you. And there are probably three very good reasons why he did this. The first is that Sodom was notoriously wicked, and he didn't want to be associated with them in any way. And secondly, he got his nephew Lot back, and because he got Lot back, he was pleased with that as uh, uh, offering from God. And thirdly, he received something of far greater value than Sodom could ever give him. He got the blessing of Melchizedek. And because of those three things, he probably said, I'm not taking anything from you. And if you look at what he did, at what Avram did here, it's a very good life lesson for all of us, especially Avram's guilt by association. You know, when he said, I'm not gonna do this because of the wickedness down there. Others would draw a bad perception of him taking these spoils from this wicked person. And if you're looking to get into a business deal, or if you're looking to get into even a marriage, you need to have the highest moral ethics when you do this as a Christian. And it's always important because people are watching. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, these words, he says, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. And that's an example that goes right back to this account of Abram and Melchizedek. And then when speaking to Titus, his young protege, he gave instructions about what church members should do. This is Paul writing again. He says, likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Now, despite the way that the media today portrays Christians, throughout the Bible, both Old Testament and New, we're shown that living lives of integrity and of holiness are the hallmarks of a faithful walk with Christ. So please remember that. And that brings me real quickly to the point where I want to explain, I'm 
see heads nodding here, so I, I'm assuming that everybody here knows why Christ came and they've accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. But if you've never done that, let me just give a two-minute explanation of what this means to you as a person. I explain that we are all in Adam, legally, potentially, and seminally. Adam fell, and we are separated from God. Now, God is infinite, and we're finite. That means that anything we do, it doesn't matter what we do. We can give candy to children, or we can help an old lady across the road, or we can give our life away, uh, burn it in the fire. It doesn't matter what we do. A finite solution to an infinite problem cannot work. And so what happened? God came out of eternity into the stream of time, space, and matter that he created, and he merged with the, by the, the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. He united with human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. He never stopped being God. He never stopped being man. He's fully God and fully man, Jesus Christ. And he fulfilled that law that we've been talking about here, that unprofitable law that can't save anybody. He fulfilled it on our behalf. And then he gave his life up as that sacrifice that we've been talking about. And it, the Bible says that if we put our trust in Jesus, if we call on him as Lord, then we will be saved. What we're saying is, I can't save myself. I'm in Adam, and I'm infinitely separated from God. I want Jesus to be my Lord. And what Jesus will do is he'll put his finite human hand on your head, and he'll put his infinite divine hand on his Father, and he will be that mediator that we've been talking about. He will reconcile you. The choice is yours. Every individual must come to God on his own terms. I can't do it for my wife. You can't do it for your children. We all have to come to Jesus Christ individually and say, I just want the gift that was offered at the cross of Calvary, and God will restore us to eternal life. All right? If you've got this thing in your head that I've never sinned, I can assure you you have. Have you ever told a lie? Of course you have. And that one sin infinitely separates you from God. So that's why Christ came, was to reconcile us to the Father and then to be our mediator all the days that we're screwing up afterwards and saying, God, I've already, or Father, I've already covered their sins. All right? A couple more things. I want to read you a poem on these particular verses, and then we'll take communion and we'll be done. This is a poem I wrote on uh, Abraham's meeting with Melchizedek. The king of Sodom went out to the valley of Shaveh to meet Avram after his return from the defeat of the eastern kings. And there Melchizedek, over bread and wine, a blessing he did say. In the name of God Most High, he accomplished priestly things. And Melchizedek blessed Avram, and this he said, Blessed be Avram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, our heavenly head. Yes, he is the creator of the earth and the sky. And blessed be God Most High, too, who has delivered your enemies into the hand of you. And Avram gave him a tithe of all the spoil, all gained in war through the battle's toil. Now the king of Sodom to Avram said, Just give me my people, and all the spoil you shall keep. But Avram declined as he shook his head. He knew his integrity was worth more than just goats and sheep. I've raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, yes, my hand to the possessor of heaven and earth. I will take nothing from you, be it low or be it high. Nothing here to me contains that much worth. You will never be able to a friend to say to your friend or to your brother, I have made Avram rich. Yes, it was me and not another. Just what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who are with me too all my gain comes from God's blessing and not from a cheating. But let Aner, Eshkel, and Mamre have what they wish from you. Let us remember Avram's example in trusting God, not in man, for the many blessings we receive each and every day. Let us praise him for these blessings as oft as we can. And from our mouths, let us continually say, Great and awesome God, 
In your light, I will trod. Thank you for all good things. To you, my heart forever sings. Above all, I thank you for my Lord Jesus, who, whose precious life he gave for us. And so in his glorious name, I say all of my praises to you each and every day. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for allowing us to meet out here at Turtle Beach and to uh, study what you have in your word concerning Melchizedek and how he prefigured the greater person who is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the eternal role that he fulfills as our great high priest intercessing for us, taking care of the things that we can't take care of ourselves. Thank you for that gift and I ask that you bless each person here today, take them home safely and uh, give them joy in the week ahead and in the month of July ahead. Take care of them and bless each one of them in their hearts and in their souls, at their tables, as they rise and as they go to bed, as they come in the door and as they go out. Just take care of them and bless them as only you can. And we look to you and we praise you because of the awesome splendor which is displayed in your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.